Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello there, music nerds. Thank you for listening today. You're a great bunch of humans, and together we will solve all the mysteries of the planet Part of what appeals to me about doing this show is it allows me to go down rabbit holes of music history. Maybe it's the Muscle Shoals rabbit hole or the historic Nashville session scene rabbit hole. So many rabbits out there. There's a rabbit hole that surrounds the world of Joe Henry that we traveled down a bit last year. And there's, of course, a coinciding rabbit hole with the great producer T-Bone Burnett. Speaking of T-Bone Burnett, my friend Holger Peterson got me T-Bone's recent biography that's called A Life in Pursuit, written by Lloyd Sachs. You should check that book out. Man, that rabbit hole is deep. Throughout the book, there was a name that kept cropping up, and that name was David Mansfield. And the more I read about him, and the more I looked him up on my own, I realized that he'd been, been involved with tons of albums and tours that I was really interested in, but he'd somehow slipped through my radar, and I was not really aware of his name. So... This is my way of remedying that and bringing his story to you. David Mansfield is a multi-instrumentalist, but mostly known as a fiddle and steel player, I guess. He was a major player in Bob Dylan's legendary Rolling Thunder Review and the albums that followed in the late 1970s, uh, I guess starting in the mid-70s, leading through into the late 70s, after which he started the somewhat ill-fated supergroup the Alpha Band with T-Bone Burnett, and that was kind of born out of the ashes of the Rolling Thunder Review as well. Then he started composing major motion picture soundtracks, particularly with Michael Cimino and lots of others, but um, yeah, some huge soundtrack work. And then not to mention, he was also in Bruce Hornsby's band when they first got signed and played, he played, David played on the massive hit The Way It Is, and uh, also he's the mandolin player on the mandolin rain song so that's pretty damn cool as well his session credits include johnny cash Edie brickell spinal tap i don't know about that one i, I didn't get a chance to ask him about that one hmm I'll, next time uh roger mcguinn lots more uh his soundtrack works include classic movies like heaven's gate year of the dragon and the sicilian david is truly a guy us nerds need to know more about so I'm so glad you're joining me today so we can hear the story of this great musician and composer. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, please check out the uh, website at www.stevedawson.ca. 
There's a podcast page there where you can make comments and keep in touch, and you can also make contributions there if you feel like making a donation. That is the only way we have of keeping this show going, and I would greatly appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, I'd also really appreciate if you would subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It's free, and it helps us get placed in the iTunes directory. So please do that and spread the word if you can. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sone Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. Now, have a listen to my conversation with David Mansfield. I'm a total music nerd and, you know, I'm a big liner notes reader and like really keen on, on players on records and how they were done and stuff. And somehow like you slipped through my radar somehow. So, uh, you know, being like discovering you like in the last year has been a really interesting process because you've been involved in like all this crazy stuff. And, um, I'm just wondering for you, um, you know, going from being a, basically like what seems like a, a, a pretty much a live performer back in the seventies when you were starting out, uh, to, to your life now, which tends to be more soundtrack oriented. Uh, is this current lifestyle? Is it kind of more up your alley? Is it more amenable to you, to you, um, personally? Well, actually in the last few years, I've started going back to playing, to doing more playing again. Um, okay. so, I've sort of made that change and and, and come back the other, out the other end. I'm finding that I'm doing a lot more playing than composing these days. Um, okay. And they're, honestly, they're just different. I mean, when I found myself doing a lot of scoring at a certain point, um, I yeah. made a conscious decision to sort of try and, and prioritize that as much as possible um, because I, I had a young child and wanted to be a hands-on parent sure. and all that kind of stuff. I mean... So it was a it was kind of a way to get off the road and no, like, like a notable a notable thing was was uh, when I was playing with Bruce Hornsby and and then the way it is became this gigantic hit that nobody was expecting and all of a sudden it's like right. every dream that Bruce had was coming true and it's like you know can you hit the road three hundred sixty five days a year forever you know I can and I decided. <laughs> No, it's, you know, I love you guys, but, you know, I'm going to try and hold out for, uh, you know, I, I had a, a a music score to write for a film later that year, and I decided, no, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to pass it up with some regrets. That's a big decision. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, I want to go back and talk about you, but since you brought that record up, can you tell me a bit about that record and how it came to be? Like, were you were you guys a band at that point, and, and where did you know Hornsby from? Well, we were a band, but Bruce had been plying his trade in L.A. for a while. You know, he he'd, oh, he he was uh, signed to a publishing deal at I can't remember who it was, uh, one one of the big publishers in town. You know, I can and and had been trying for a long time to get something together, and it was sort of part of a, a, a new sort of foray to try and see if he could get a, you know his own career going to sort of put a band together and he did it by word of mouth at, you know, friends asking people. Um, yeah. And as you do in LA, put it together 
with a bunch of musicians who were all working other gigs as well to you know to make a living. You were in LA at that time. Yeah, I was living in. I lived in LA. I, I moved out there when uh, we formed the Alpha Band in, in 1976, and, okay. and I stayed there throughout. Well, most of the 80s. By the late 80s, I was sort of back in New York half the time. Where Where do you live now? Back in the New York area. I'm I'm in the suburbs in New Jer- in northern okay. New Jersey. So go, going to that Hornsby session for a sec, because that was such a huge record. I mean, when I was kind of a, a, a youngster growing up, um, that, that album was everywhere. What was, the, what was the recording process like for that record? And, and um, uh, did it really surprise everyone? Like, was it totally from left field how massive it was? Well, yeah, it, it was. I mean, the, the thing about that record is... Um, it was mostly made at a small little studio. A guy named Eddie King had a little studio that we that we recorded most of the tracks. Um, an awful lot of it, uh, the rhythm section was rhythm machine and and Bruce playing left hand on an OBX oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, in fact, oh cool. In fact, there were a, a number of times when when the track was. In fact, on the track "The Way It Is," it, it was all Bruce and, and I played guitar, and it was only—it was only actually me and him. The drums replaced with a real drummer later. Is that really just a, no? It's uh, it's it's machine. like Lindrum or something. You know that was, it, it, really? was, it, okay. it was it was it was part of the you know the, the uh, aesthetic of, of of the thing was 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 to have this you know drum machine thing and uh, the drummer is a wonderful guy named John Molo who, who goes back with Bruce I think to college days um, uh-huh. and uh, when he would play you, you know he 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 was trying to play very metronomically there were there are the tunes where we did that that didn't have that vibe to it but you know because because that was bruce's signature thing was at first with you know with these tracks with this metronomic um, drum machine that was not by any Mm -hmm. means trying to imitate or emulate a real human drummer and is there no bass player on that song is it all just left hand keys on the way it is yeah really okay i got i gotta go back and check that out joe puerta uh was you know Fantastic bass player, you know, was in the band, but I don't think he, I don't think he added a bass on that one. I think it's just the uh, OBX. A lot of making that record, you know, was sometimes, you know, like like just tracking it individual tracks. You know, what I mean, like Bruce laying down yeah. his parts, me laying down my parts, George Marinelli laying down his parts, etc. You know, there were some tracks where okay. where where we all played together. You know, and and, and then we went into a big room and uh-huh. and 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 did it sort of more of the you know the uh, the high end way. You know, like at a at, at a nice big. Yeah, was that album done with label support, or were you guys just no? Doing it was it, like, we, on your own. No, we, um, he was we he were were signed by RCA, and so it was done for uh-huh. a label. It wasn't it wasn't spec at all, and there was there was excitement about the about the band. But um, when the record came out, oh, RCA picked a, a single to lead off with that was. One of the things that was sort of, I wouldn't call it derivative, but one of the things that didn't really, wasn't one of the most original th- sounding things on, 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 the, yeah. on the record. 
and it sort of okay. had a tepid, you know, showing on the <laughs> charts. It, it it did get played, but it d- didn't become a hit yeah. at all. They had absolutely no idea about the way it is. That happened uh, because uh, a DJ in, in, in England just started playing it uh, and getting requests, and, and, it, and it sort of came a total groundswell from the ground up and became a big hit in England. And then RCA jumped on really? and said, oh, oh, yeah, we knew that song was great. And they rushed it out, and then it became a worldwide hit. Okay. It was a very humble beginning. <laughs> Was there a point where the record wasn't doing well right out of the gate and and you guys were, you know, wondering if it was going to get completely shelved? I don't think it ever got or that. Did it happen? I, I don't think it ever got that bad. I mean, you know, we were th- okay. we were thrilled to hear the first couple of singles that they pulled on the radio, you know, but 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 there was, you know, I I guess we probably had we probably had some concern, that, you know, that like um it wasn't really breaking through. Right, but but right. It, it it happened it, it it happened relatively quickly, so it's not like it had a chance to turn sour and the you know record companies started to think, oh, what are we going to do with these guys? It right. wasn't like that at all. Were you guys playing much as a band before making that record? Was it yeah. a, like it was a thing that you guys were doing? We, okay. we, yeah, we, you know, we we pl- we played the local clubs around L.A. like like any other yeah. any uh, other of a thousands of bands that were, that were you know trying to make a living or looking for a record deal and. We rehearsed in Bruce's garage and lived out in the valley, and uh-huh. you know did the usual okay. the, the usual band thing, and and the rest of us all had you know were making a living, um, you know working for other artists that were fairly successful, right? Try and trying to keep so and the, trying to keep the, the, the band re- together un, until the RCA thing deal happened, right? Okay, and so the the deal happens. You make the record. It slowly takes off and becomes massive, and then it came down to like. Management or whatever saying, "All right, guys, this is it. We're we're heading out on the never-ending tour," and that's when you kind of jump ship. Yeah, they they were extremely gracious about my doing that, and um, and 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 uh-huh. they replaced me with a, a a wonderful guy named Pete Harris, who was another friend of Molo's and Hornsby's from back in the college days. So they kept okay. they kept it in the family, and that was a tough decision, I guess, or was it just something that you felt like you had to do just for Personal reasons. It, it's something I felt I had to do for personal reasons, and, and also I, I felt like like I had a career that was flourishing pretty well composing, mm-hmm. and right. that you know even with a great bunch of guys playing great music, you know that that I just kind of flipped the coin and said, "Oh, this you know career wise, this is more important." I don't know whether it was a mistake right. or not. Who who knows? Yeah, who knows, right? That's a that's an just, interesting. Just had, had to, had to make a, had to make a judgment call, and and what of course, you know, pushed me over is the fact that I realized that you know that Bruce had been waiting all his life for a break like this. He finally got it, so he was now never going to yeah. turn a booking down. And and right. so you know, if I did it, it would it would mean that, you know, I said goodbye to my kid and picked them up when they graduated from high school. <laughs> totally, I think you probably made the right call, man. That's good. My youngest is is in high school. My middle one is yeah. is in college, and and so I'm going. I've been back on the road. I spent the last couple of years. I was playing with Bobby McFerrin. Yeah, um, right. A, a, last earlier this fall, I was out with Glenn Hansard. You know, I'm fine. Okay. I, I I love it. I love performing. Yeah. I don't I don't mind the road. I don't mind tour buses. Uh-huh. It's all good. Yeah. Going way back, um, I know you grew up in New Jersey. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Uh, what were there? A, um, was there a lot of music around your house? And how did you? I'm just curious how you got into being a multi instrumentalist. Whether you were kind of messing around with a ton of instruments when you were a kid, or if that happened gradually. 
there was a lot of music around. I mean, I, I grew up, it, it was a musical family. My parents, both classical musicians, my father was, played violin in the New York Philharmonic for 50-something years. No kidding. And, wow. And so I grew up around the symphony. Okay. You know, quite a bit. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm 60 years old now, so I mean, like, when, when I was three or four, I mean, they hadn't built, built Lincoln Center yet. They were still, I guess, at Carnegie Hall or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Goes, you know, my memory of the New York Philharmonic was a bunch of um, grizzled Eastern European men playing right. poker with, in a cloud of cigar smoke back, backstage <laughs> in their underwear at Carnegie Hall. Okay. That's what I think of as the New York Philharmonic. Okay. Um, it isn't, isn't quite the same today, but... So that, that I was surrounded by music that way. I mean, you know, my parents uh-huh. would, you know, play, have played chamber music at the house for fun, you know, on, on uh-huh. weekends and th- I'd go to sleep listening to, listening to a quartet in the living room, that kind of stuff. What about your mom? What was she, what, was she, what, what did she play? My mom's a, fl- a flute player and she, she uh, did a lot of, um, well, she, she, she subbed, she did freelance work, she did a lot of teaching, mm-hmm. you know, she used to sub over the Jersey Symphony. Were you trained as a classical musician growing yeah, up? Yeah, I was learning. I was learning classical violin as okay. a kid, um, and played in the local youth orchestra, in the yeah. sort of county youth orchestra, and that was very formative for me as well. Uh-huh. Um, but it was also it was the '60s, and unlike today, you know, the the barrier to being in a band was you know the bar was very low. It's like you know if you had a guitar, you know, you could <laughs> you be in a band. Okay. And, you know, I mean, because all you had to do is learn like three chords and you could be playing, sure. you know, you could be playing I Want to Hold Your Hand or something. So everybody had a band, you know, right. and every garage, you know, like on, on, on the weekend had, had their kids, you know, playing Wilson Pickett songs and things like that. Right. I'm just curious about how your parents, who were in the classical world, were they cool with with you picking up other instruments and and rocking out as a kid, or did they kind of want you to focus on classical? They hated the whole pop and and rock thing. They you know right. didn't they didn't consider that music, okay. uh, but they didn't forbid me to do it. Uh huh. So what happened is that I ended up sort of playing rock and roll guitar, you know, like and and classical violin at the same time. Yeah. And because of my my age, uh, I was probably twelve when I first heard Jimi Hendrix. You know, game uh-huh. changer, of course. You know, I can sure. and 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 started and I and I, I had some ability, and so I started playing that kind of stuff. You know, the uh-huh. Eric Clapton, t- you know, Cream era tunes and things like that. Okay. You know, that was the kind of thing that I, that I gravitated towards. And and the multi-instrumental thing happened when at a certain point I, I realized, hey, wait a minute, what if I play this stuff that I'm playing on the guitar, on the violin? Uh-huh. Um, and then what if I put a pickup on it? And then there were other people around that time who were starting to put the violin in, into, into a pop music context. I mean, the Jefferson Airplane, right. or rather Hot Tuna did that with, yep. with John Creech. 
so that was sort of the start of it. Uh-huh. You know, like like um, I got I gained a sort of little local reputation for being the kid who could play blues on the violin. Who who else were you listening to that you dug like either on the violin or or like were you listening to a lot of blues stuff as well or did you not go back? Oh yeah, too much further. Okay, but on but on the on the violin, I also sort of early on. Uh, discovered Steph Smith and Stefan Grappelli, and um, right. but it was probably due to 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 guys like Sid Page, who was playing with Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks in, in the early seventies. Yeah, and he was sort of doing this sort of Joe Venuti, Stefan right. Grappelli esque kind of pseudo, you know, swing really. Did you, did you ever get a chance to see some of those people, like Hendrix or or um, no, Dan Hicks or anything I didn't. like that? Unfortunately, I didn't. One of the most amazing things I did get a chance to see once when I was, oh, maybe I was 15 or something, I got a chance on a single night to go to two clubs in New York and uh-huh. see Stefan Grappelli on the east side and then go over to the west side and see Joe Venuti, who at that time I think was no probably 80-ish or something. What about the New York folk scene? Was that something that you were involved in or got a chance to see, or were you too young at that? At I was that too young for that. I was too uh-huh. young for that. I mean, it, it was my connection in the mid-'70s with the sort of Dylan click. I learned about all that stuff later. Okay. But, no, I was, it, a, I was a bit too young to be a real folky, you know, like during the sort of great right. American folk scare of, you know, the yeah. late-'50s and-'60s. Yeah, you would have missed that by a, by a decade or something. I wasn't too young to be unfazed by the Peter Paul Mary phenomenon or or Dylan and all that kind uh-huh. of stuff. You know, that they were having their big hits when I was a real little kid. Right, right. Can you tell me about how you went from being in bands with your buddies in Jersey? Now I I there's a band that I saw mentioned somewhere on the web that I, I've never heard. I don't even know if there's a recording, but Quacky Duck and his Barnyard Friends. I gotta know about that band. <laughs> <laughs> well, that band was the start of my professional career. It was sort of like a, a local band that you know that that uh, were really hot, and and okay. they they heard heard about me, you know, like th- through friends, and, and I lived in the next town over than they did. And, and this is still, you know, you're still in Jersey at this time. I'm still in Jersey. Yeah. Footnote that people some people know is that the um, two of Tony Bennett's kids were in the band, uh, Dagal really? and, and Danny and Danny Bennett. Really? Yeah, and um, that figures into the story later. But but we we were sort of like one of the hot local bands, you know, that played a lot that played a lot of dances and concerts and stuff like that. And we uh, wrote original songs. 
as well as it wasn't just covers. It was also, you know, starting to write. And over the over a year or so, things developed and we actually started playing at Max's Kansas City and the Bitter mm-hmm. End and 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 we're a serious, a serious northern New Jersey band, and, and we got signed and, and made a record uh, for Warner Brothers. Okay, so I got to find that record then. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess we probably recorded that when I was about 17. Well, it was uh, it was like three and four part harmonies, a la the okay. band, and you know yeah. Crosby, Stills and Nash. You know, I mean, sort of a um, a country folk aspect to it. I had already start, sort of started stretching out on other instruments, so I was playing mandolin and pedal steel in addition to mm-hmm. guitar and violin. Okay. The the vocals were quite complex. I think that was that was a big feature. And were yeah. you singing as well, or was that the Bennett kids doing that? No, I. I but it was a six piece band, so we you know we had holy cow, you know four excellent singers in the band. Um, and what's the album called? It was called Media Push. I don't think it's, it you know it, it it's impossible to find other than on eBay or something like that, but. Okay. So what happened with that band? Like, um, did you eventually break up or what? We did. I mean, you know, we, we lost our, our, our deal with, um, with Warner Brothers after the first album because yeah. we weren't able to really snag a, a big-time booking agent and, and, and get on the kind of promotional tours that would, that would have helped us push the record through. The record got okay. an amazing amount of initial airplay. It, it did really well, but we weren't, weren't able to back it up and... Okay. and, and Warner Brothers decided to let us go, and and we sort of kept our things going with with our with our our reputation at the clubs and and college yeah. work and stuff like that. By by this time, uh, I was um, starting to get session work in New York, mm-hmm. playing playing a lot actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like there there was there was so much session work, and and I was one of the few guys in in New York who could play pedal steel and country violin and a little bit right. of mandolin, and so and so you you could you couldn't throw a stick without hitting a work right you know, I, what, what, I mean, what kind of sessions were you doing back then i i used to play with uh, chip taylor i played on a posthumous jim croce record collection oh, okay. I, uh, his, yeah. his his producers uh, cashman and west i did a lot of stuff for them because they, they did uh-huh. sort of you know this country rock kind of kind of stuff there was a lot of work and and through that i ended up uh one summer i i um, played on a record and, and toured a bit with Eric Anderson. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was getting I was getting a lot of work. I was, and, and I was getting somewhat of a reputation already. It was kind of weird. Yeah. Um, so when I got the the gig to play on the Rolling Thunder Review, the Bob Dylan stuff. I mean, I was only eighteen. Um, Holy shit! <laughs> but I had had an immense amount of experience for an eighteen year old. Yeah, sounds and, like. It. And that was another one of those moments, like the sort of Bruce Hornsby kind of moment that I mentioned before, because, you know, it's like, was I going to go off and take this tour or stick with the band kind of thing? Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious about the pedal steel thing. I, I'm a steel player as well. And I'm just wondering what drew you to that instrument if, cause there's really very little correlation between like fiddle and pedal steel, but um, was it kind of one of those things where you saw an opportunity, if you learn that instrument that you'd be able to get a bunch of work on it or were you just like, really no, not at all. Somehow? I was, I was too young to really be thinking that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, it, it, it was, it was just that the instruments that I were, that I was playing, that I were playing, were sort of became in vogue in that early period of sort of the country rock thing, you know, like all of the bands that were sort of like the Buffalo Springfield Birds spinoffs, you know, the the Burrito yeah. Brothers, Poco, yeah. you know, you, you name it. And when I first heard Pedal Steel, you know, which was around that time, because I mean, there'd be no reason for me to hear it before then, you know, like growing up around New York. Yeah, the, the, it was this, the sound of it just flipped me out. I mean, do you remember um, some of the players that you were really inspired by? Well, Rusty Young, yeah, uh, sure. for for Poco, you know, he just knocked me out. You know, I, I don't know what it was. I heard him on the Buddy Emmons, uh huh. Totally, you know, totally flipped me out. Yeah, and um, and I was a big Burrito Brothers fan. So Pete Kleinow. Yeah, was sneaky. Was he ever? Um, like, did you ever get a chance to see him? I did get a chance. I saw him play maybe just once or twice. I, I remember seeing okay. him play in L.A. Doug Som had a was doing sort of this big band kind of thing, not big band, right. traditional big band. I mean, but it, but it was a gigantic band that he used to play with in the in the mid seventies. Yeah, and 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 Sneaky Pete was his steel player for those gigs. Oh, I remember seeing wow. one or two of those. That uh-huh. that was amazing. Yeah, Doug um, but actually, actually, one of the things that 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 probably earliest got me flipped out about Pedal Steel was hearing Sneaky Pete. It was hearing him take the solo on that early Joe Cocker record where he did came to the bathroom window with a fuzz tone. Oh yeah, have you ever right. have you I ever f- heard that? I totally have. Yeah, um, I was just checking that out the other day because I was pulling out all the Leon Russell stuff, and that is a that freakish, freakish solo. It's it's. He, he had such a, a voice, you know, like uh-huh. such a unique voice. It didn't sound like anybody else. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Just, you know, and, and, and then becoming a big Burritos fan, you know, like uh-huh. Devil in Disguise and all the other things where, that were sort of steel-centric. At first, um, oh, Danny you- Bennett had an old lap steel, and, and I uh-huh. took apart some coat hangers and made a contraption so I could bend <laughs> the B-string on it. You know, I, can, I was so intent on that I was going to find some way to, to make that sound. Did you, if, did you have um, a teacher at all, or were you just self-taught? No, no uh, my teacher was uh, episodes of Hee Haw. 
<laughs> because that was the right. only way somebody from New Jersey, New York, could see a pedal steel player up close and see their fingers and hear it. Right. Because yeah, the music around. was live. Do you remember who the steel player on Hee Haw was? Uh, well, I mean, it was various bands. I mean, like, you know, it, 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 it was all the, the biggest guys in Nashville because everybody played on that show. Right, right. So, you know, one, one time might be Lloyd Green, or time might be, you know, Pete Drake or right. Buddy Emmons or whoever. I eventually got a cheap learner's steel on 48th Street in New York and and I think a book along with it and and mm-hmm. and taught myself and luckily one of the things that that made it really easy to learn is um I wasn't a grateful dead fan but I loved that record working man's dead and it was because sure, it was yeah. so folky and stuff like that and and Jerry Garcia played steel all over the thing Yeah he did and yeah. he, and he had a beautiful way of composing fills and you know obligados behind people's vocals and stuff like that, but he played very very simply, mm-hmm. you know, just just a couple of pedals, you know, obviously no no knee levers or anything like that, yeah. And um, copying his riffs and his solos and things like that was was a great way was a great way to learn. When you listen to Buddy Emmons, it just melts your face off, and there's nothing you could possibly do as yeah. a beginner to, to get there. But the Garcia stuff, you could actually sit down and spend a few days and kind of like understand what the hell was going on. Yeah, precisely. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was great. It was like you know the Pete Seeger method for banjo or something. You could be up <laughs> right. and running in, in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and, 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 and then also, you know, like you would also concentrate on, on tone and touch and stuff like that. When I joined the band, I mean, I didn't even have an instrument. I was just flipped out over the sound and wanted one. But we made our mm-hmm. record only a couple years later, and I played pedal steel all over it. On the Quacky Duck record, yeah, and 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 okay. and and by the time I, you know, a couple of years later again with, with Dylan, I mean, all these Rolling Thunder things have been reissued on CD. I played a lot of pedal steel. So tell me about like how do you go from playing in Quacky Duck and being a Jersey guy and doing sessions in New York, and then suddenly you get asked to to join Dylan's Rolling Thunder review. Uh, how does that happen? Like, what 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 went on behind the scenes there? Um, it was due to my running into uh, Bobby Newworth, who okay. is an old friend of of Dylan's, and uh, I guess they had been hanging out in, in, in the in the village again that okay. summer of seventy five or something like that. And Newworth was kind of he was kind of like the ringleader, right? In a way, very much, yeah. Okay, very much. He was the heart of the thing, you know, right? And uh, the way I got involved is he was playing a show at the Bitter End, a Bob Newworth show, and 
back in those days when you played a show at you know Max's or the Bitter End, you played for a week. You know, you didn't play like one night. You know, you played like three or four nights or something. Okay, yeah. And and he had all these people that you know that were. He started out with with a fairly large band, but people were starting to sit in and drop in and stay. And, and what was his deal? He, was he kind of a folk singer? Yeah, singer songwriter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a, a girlfriend of mine at the time uh, went into the the bitter end and saw the and saw the show and 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 noticed the sort of very impromptu improvisatory nature of everything and yeah. uh, the way people were sitting in and things like that and sort of she thought in her head aha the one thing they don't have is a violin uh-huh. and I know and she sort of the next night she dragged me down there marched me back to the dressing room and said I. Bobby Newworth, this is my boyfriend, David Mansfield, and you know, <laughs> you can, and and instead of just like calling for security and having you know us thrown out, he's he's <laughs> he's just invited me up to play on the stage, awesome. you know, and wow, and and that was also what he was like, what the times were like, you know, yeah, sure, and so I just ended up. Um, fitting in with with everybody and we all like became friends and we'd we'd play and un, until two or three in the morning then we'd go to usually we go to bobby's uh, friend uh, larry poons's house larry poons is a painter and we'd play music in his loft until daybreak then maybe go down to chinatown for breakfast okay you know so <laughs> it was it was it was pretty intense it was it was you know heady times and was Dylan around then, or or this was just Newworth and his crew? He was, but but not. But um, I didn't meet him yet. Okay. You know, like there there were there were other after hours hijinks with Dylan that I that I didn't happen to be involved in. Okay, uh, and I didn't even really know about that connection. Uh huh. Um, I certainly didn't know about who Bobby Newworth was and wh- right. about his crowd and all that stuff. So. Um, this gig finally, you know, it ended at the end of the week and we had, you know, we had a blast and, you know, like, and, yeah. and at one point Bobby just sort of said, Hey, listen, there's this, there's something going on in the fall and I can't tell you anything about it, but are you free? <laughs> and, you know, I just keep it under your hat and, and you know, I can, I said, sure. And, and, and that's what it turned out to be. Holy shit! We 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 were, uh, we were we were all we were all brought on to that situation as Bobby Newworth's band. Really, really, and Dylan really? and Dylan had had his own band, okay. which was sort of a subset, which is really a subset of some of the people that were playing with Bobby, just okay. you know, like the the rhythm section. And, was, and when when yeah. we actually got into rehearsals, everything just sort of melded together, and you know, there was it sort of just became one big band. And was there an audition process for? No, not not not. So, not so you, at all. you were just you were just in. Like Dylan trusted New Earth to like put a crew together, and whoever he liked was you were in that sounds much too logical to even describe the process it was, <laughs> it's it it just sort of happened you know i mean it, the, the the whole weird you know i mean like and, you know bob would we do have these rehearsals and bob wouldn't say anything he'd just like start playing a song uh-huh. and everybody would sort of figure out what he was playing and and if they knew it lurch into it and if they don't you know try and listen carefully and hang on and hopefully play the right chords uh, it was it was it was it, it was you know not much was said and was there much of a rehearsal process there there was i mean we we were in um in sir for a, a couple of weeks and then um up near the first gig in the uh, they set up a more full production kind of rehearsal 
in in the hotel and um there were no charts there was no there were no set lists there were no you know right. I, um after after a while sort of um the way nature abhors a vacuum um the bass player rob stoner sort of like became like the de facto band leader just like someone who was going to cut off the end of the song and like sort of when Bob was late for rehearsal, rehearsed the band, you know, on okay. some of the tunes that we had been playing every day. And, yeah, yeah. And Rob ended up singing, you know, high harmony on, on, on many of the songs. And, okay. And, 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 then it, and then it became like a bit more organized. And so was, was T-Bone Burnett involved at this point too, or did he come along later? Yeah. No, no. T-Bone was, was, on, T-Bone was on the stage when, back in the, at the bitter end when I met uh, New Earth. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so he was part of that crew. Yeah, part of you know oh, that that's okay. how T Bone got involved. He got involved the same way I did, except that, you know he was had, had been a friend of Bobby Newworth's out in L A. and they you know known each other for quite a while and were okay. close. Yeah. In yep. fact, in fact, I think that when Bobby got the gig, you know, from uh, to play the bitter end, you know, probably I think one of the first things he did was sort of like say hey t-bone will you come out you know t-bone and and also steven souls from the alpha band yeah we all met on that stage and just sort of said hey here's a plane ticket will you come out and do this gig with me okay <laughs> and and what was t-bone's role in that band like was he playing lead guitar i mean mick ronson was in that band too right like what the hell yeah i know there there were a million guitar players okay um, so it was just like a crazy wall of guitar yeah, and most of the okay. time T Bone was was playing some sort of rhythm guitar, and okay. occasionally he there was a couple of times where he got a chance to play lead. Okay, not many. Uh, did Mick Ronson was he involved from the beginning too, or like what the hell happened with him? Mick was the- Mick was involved for, uh, again from the beginning for, with that that um, Bobby Newworth bitter end gig, and okay. I think that was one of the th- one of the things that you know like that that. The 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 situation the vibe was just so intensely gonzo. I think that yeah. that's one of the things that put, that made my girlfriend think, "Hey, I should bring my my boyfriend down here." <laughs> yeah. um, and like, so Ronson was just hanging out in New York then, and, and... I guess okay. I, I think I, I think I, I've put this together afterwards, so I'm not sure. I might be wrong, but I think that that things had just gone south with Bowie. Yeah, because this is pretty soon after the whole Spiders from Mars deal. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. He is still right. It was just right after. Right. But but I think like he was he was he was looking for something to do. I mean like he was still signed to to main man Tony DeFreeze. He was you know had 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 made a I think had made a Mick Ronson. You know had had started on his solo career. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know that that it was close enough to the you know being let go from the Bowie band that you know that that he may have you know been still reeling from that a bit because no because norm because normally the idea of you know having mick ronson play with the you know a country alt folk <laughs> singer doing this crazy i mean you know i mean that sounds like somebody ate the wrong brownies yeah it totally does like how was the musical experience as the tour progressed like was dylan totally unpredictable did it feel like did the band really come together and gel like i just don't really know much i mean i know there's live records and stuff like that but how did how how did it feel from an insider's point of view well it was it did feel very chaotic i I mean like like there were certain songs where bob tended to change the phrase lengths you know Uh at will and things like that but on the other hand it did sort of after we were on the road things did sort of fall into a pattern and there were set lists and there were 
you know, arrangements, you know, okay. um, and, 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 and it became, it became more predictable. And, and so I think what really happened is, is, is that, um, I mean, there was this great, you know, feeling of excitement of you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it, but it did sort of fall together, uh, uh, you know, like, um, between rehearsal and then actually being out on the road. Uh -huh. And consequently, I think that there were some times when we were playing, like, you know, I mean, with, with Dylan, everything has always been bootlegged. Every, every performance that he's ever right. done is, you know, yeah. like is available somewhere. Um, and, you know, if you listen to them, you know, there, there's some performances of ours that, you know, felt a, a bit train wrecky. And then there were other, others where, where they, there was lots of brilliance. must have been a wild ride like up and downs uh, every night like within each night but then some like great nights and some not so great nights <laughs> even if we were a little ragtag one night there would still be not even just moments of brilliance but but stretches of brilliance you know like every, every night for yeah. one thing it it really was a review you know like uh -huh. it was you know there were like five or six principles or something and you know, like everybody would sort of do their own set Mm -hmm. And then we would do things together in various combinations, and so, so there was some just like hanging out involved too, where you weren't on stage. Yeah, okay. yeah, but this, but but it was the kind of thing where every where it was so exciting that you would never like go off stage and then go back to the dressing room. You would go off stage and hang out in the wings and watch whoever else was performing. Right, and how you know, how crazy how crazy was the the whole hang there? Like, was the, there must have been a lot of hangers on and like a, just a real scene around that thing because it was such a big show right it, it yes but it was also kind of insulated because it, it was this sort of small and very secretive thing like like the shows they, they was really cute what they what they did is that they would you know they'd, they'd advance a show but everything had to be kept secret they uh, they wouldn't nobody would know that there was a show okay uh then, like the day before, some of the advance guys on the tour would come and like start start like spreading pamphlets out. It was like Willy Wonka style, you know. Like if you have one of these and you bring it to such and such, you can get a ticket for this Bob Dylan show in two days. Oh, so there was no like tour announcement with dates. There, that no, no. I mean, in fact, shit. we we didn't we didn't know where we were going uh, really? sometimes. That's crazy. I mean, it's very romantic, you know. Like, yeah. um, we did pick up a lot of you know hangers on but but it was it was also extremely insulated there was you know like there there was no great press from the outside of people to get in because nobody knew where we were what we were going to do next so i mean dylan's kind of known for the his you know pretty unpredictable nature and and left turns in his career so what happened at the end of that i know there was sort of two legs of that whole tour yeah um, w w was it just suddenly over and that was it that was the end of it or did you have to eventually walk away from it or what happened no, it, it it was it was suddenly over, and that was it. Because um, I didn't, you know, he'd been shooting a film the whole time, or shooting mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. He had a camera crew that was on call like twenty four seven while we were on the road, and you know, like filming the shows too. The shows were filmed, uh -huh. and then all this 
improvised scenes that were just made up, you know, with, uh, you know, he, he invited Sam Shepard along to, to, right. to write scenes for the film, but that never happened. It's like, you know, Sam just hung out, you know, with, with, with the rest of us and, and like, and, 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 you know, Bobby and, you know, Newworth and Dylan might cook up the idea that, you know, let's go to, they come up with a situation the way you might at an improv group or something. And they would roust up the camera crew and get a couple people to help them do it. And the idea was that it was going to be some sort of wild road documentary film, or was it a, I think, a... I think Dylan thought he was basically going to make a feature length art film. Okay. You know, narrative fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, a after the second tour, he, uh, hunkered down in the editing room uh, with uh, the late Howard Alk, who who was involved in the film. Uh -huh. um, I think Howard was involved with his previous film, Eat the Document, possibly. Okay. And uh, and everything stopped for like a couple of years. Right. Yeah. He just stopped touring at that point, and so that was that was it. Became obsessed, you know, full time with this film, and and that's that's what what he did. And it did come out, right? It did come out. Yeah. It was like four hours long or something. It was, you know, <laughs> it was like trying to watch a Leany Riefenstahl picture or something. What's the it name so of it long. again? It was called Ronaldo and Clara. You know, there's and, a good chance that 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 people haven't seen the last of it yet. You know, like that, because there was so much good concert stuff that was recorded. Maybe it'll see the light of day in some form, one yeah. way or the other. You know, the the Dylan people have been so much in, into releasing old, you know, legacy stuff. Yeah, there must be know. some amazing footage and audio stuff from those. There is tours. Yeah, cool. but anyway, so it was it was it was just it was just over, and and yeah. it was. Quite, quite a you know the, the experience was so intense it was quite a wallop for everybody that was on the tour for it to just be gone. Right. You know, like uh, I mean, like I know Ramblin' Jack Elliott got horribly depressed, and okay. and and many oh, no. and many of us uh, tried to form bands first. Yeah. Ronson and Rob Stoner and Howie Wyeth and McGuinn and I tried to form a band, mm -hmm. and somehow it just didn't gel. You know, like it just sounded like. You know, Rob doing his songs, Roger doing his songs, Ronson doing his songs. It never really felt like a band quite. So mm -hmm. we scuttled that thing and instead we spent some, you know, a couple months and, and made a solo record from McGuinn that came out on Columbia called Cardiff Rose. Oh, okay. Which was a which is a pretty good record actually. And and then after and then after that the next thing um, T Bone and Steven had been talking about starting something and that that was they so asked me to get involved in the Alpha Band. And were you living in LA at that point? No, I was still in, in I was still in New York. 
So the Alpha Band came with a, a lot of expectations. I know Clive Davis signed you guys, and it was like a big deal, right? Like, uh, was there a lot of um, expectation commercially for that band? Because that kind of didn't happen, right? Yeah, well, I don't know. Clive seemed to expect something to happen with the band. I mean, like, we I think we sort of had an inkling that 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 what we were doing was a little too outside for it to really you know commercially catch on. But we but mm-hmm. you know we we hoped it would. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. we we yeah, of course. You know, made attempts to like you know make single versions of some of the songs that we recorded for the record and things like mm-hmm. that. But it, it it remained sort of like a critic's darling kind of thing. And was T Bone sort of taking on a production role at that point, or was he just a band no. member like the rest of you? Okay. No, we 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 all produced together like a, yeah. like a band. T Bone sort of had the expertise of uh, uh, you know like that. He had been making records from the time he was in his teens. You know, he right. he, had, he had had a little eight track, I think, studio in Fort Worth when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. But we'd all had experience too. I mean, yeah, like no you know, yeah. when 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 I was making the Quacky Duck record, we had a producer. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm sure he would violently disagree, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, honestly, we sort of produced it ourselves. What was the general gist of the sessions for those records? I think you made three Alpha Band records, right? There isn't another yeah. one, is there? Right. No, there's. Um, we made three. And and were they kind of band-like, or were you doing a lot of experimenting at that point? Because there's there's quite a bit of instrumental stuff, and you're playing a lot of like cello and viola and things like that. Like, what was the what were the sessions like for those records? The first one was kind of live. As, as I recall, we even did a bunch of live vocals. It was something that was that was closely, you know, related to what what we had been playing in, in concert. The the stuff that you know that we had done that had, um, when we were signed, mm-hmm. and it was cut pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. The second one was was sort of more of a studio record where we started, you know, stretching out and playing around and yeah. um, getting silly with a million overdubs and. Stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, getting more interested in like orchestration and and uh you know building string parts at that time i sort of always had been even from from the time i was a teenager you know like that was something that i you know like like i i loved uh say like because i was playing the violin i, I loved coming you know coming up and and, and with string parts yeah. you know like and usually i end up, end up multi-tracking and performing them myself rather uh-huh. than hiring people to come in and, and, and do a string section but but i, I loved all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. Gee, I think on the second record where it was sort of, you know, more tracked, less live, yeah. there was a piano song written by a, a good friend of ours named Tom Canning. Um, uh-huh. I, I think on the record he's credited as K.O. Thomas, sort of his nickname. Okay. Uh, it, was called, it was called Honey Run. It was just a beautiful little piano piece. And, and, and I basically scored it for, for strings and just put the parts on one at a time. And All you. It's yeah, you know, it was yeah. all me and Tom, right. and and it very much was the kind of thing that was what I would later do for film scoring. Right, right. 
the third record just got uh, that that was when both T-Bone and Steven were sort of writing all this these songs with this heavy spiritual content and right. and 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 the idea behind that was that we were just sort of going to go over the top and be you know like um that it would be eclectic to the nth degree okay which which it ended up being i mean you know like yeah um the album stylistic was just stylistically was sort of just all over the map and before we recorded it um t-bone as i recall sort of warned clive davis that what what we were going to do was going to be notoriously uncommercial if he had thought that the first <laughs> two things were uncommercial he hadn't heard Wait anything you yet and, next one really and if and, and and he offered him like if he wanted to like cut us loose you know and let us do this for somebody else rather than lose them more money that you know that that would be perfectly fine I mean, you guys have, must have had healthy budgets. It was back in the day, like, uh, and and you guys were things a big didn't cost signing. so much back in the day, also. Right, right, okay. You know, like you 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 might have a budget of fifty thousand bucks, and and that could go carry you through making a record for a few months. Right, and so were you spending quite a few months, or or up to a year, or whatever, making those records? Well, I remember spending a lot of, a lot of time on the second one. Uh huh. Uh, first one was was relatively quick, and I don't think yeah. we spent a whole lot of time on the third one either, because because there was again a lot more live playing. What eventually happened with the band? Like I don't know how that band came to an end. Was there some issue, or was it just like you, it ran its course for you guys, or you got dropped, or what was the deal? Um, well, um, I don't know. There were some issues between Stephen and T Bone at a certain point. You know, the usual sort of tug of war that can that can happen between songwriters and stuff and yeah once again i think that another event sort of like put the kibosh on things that dylan came out of his basement <laughs> finished mm-hmm. finished editing that film and um and he came out and was ready to to tour again and he called steven and i to play with him but he didn't call t-bone oh okay you know and 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 we actually toured I guess it was just about all of 1978. You know, it was there was like a world tour. It's like you know, play. Oh, so you went back out with Dylan then? Yeah, play play the Far East, play the States, play Europe. You know, okay. play Australia, New Zealand. So so although things were running their course with the Alpha Band, I th- I think that sort of made sure that that did you it. Know, after that, it was going to be over. Was that the end of you working with Dylan that after that tour? I didn't even realize that you went back after Okay. With the Alpha Band doing what you did, making those records, and you're sort of playing as a band and things like that, were you guys touring a lot? And were you living in LA? Like, had you moved to LA at that point? We did. We all moved to LA. I mean, okay. with the Alpha Band, I lived in New York. T-Bone was sort of shuttling between Texas and, and LA. Um, uh-huh. And Steven lived in LA, and we sort of had to pick pick a place Somewhere. to all be together and yeah. make it work and so right. we we chose LA I moved out okay um but we we didn't we, we didn't play live a lot we you know I I think we had a bit of an attitude <laughs> right um and and you know this was in the days when you know Steely Dan was really popular and they famously didn't tour 
Right. You know, and people, and, and, and you know, us artists thought we could get away with that kind of crap. Okay. So oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I get it. Our touring was really minimal. With the last stint with Dylan, too, like, was he, was that, like, he must be kind of an odd guy to work for, I'm sure. I've heard from lots of people, but, like, uh, being out, you know, on a world tour with, with him, was he somebody that you felt you ever got close to, or was he just kind of, like, isolated and, and removed from the rest of the band? I never really had much interaction with him during the Rolling Thunder days. Also, uh-huh. you know, I was a, I was a kid, you know, like... Right. So that that had something to do with it too, I'm, I'm sure. But also, like during the second Rolling Thunder tour, you know, he was rather taciturn. I think his marriage was falling apart. You know, he was yeah. going through a, a rough time. In '78, it was after his marriage had dissolved, and, and he yeah. just wanted to work. And and he was completely the opposite. He was completely completely accessible. Hang huh. out with the band after the gig. You know, go drink, go go to the bar and have some drinks yeah yeah really wow those those are not words i've heard used to describe him before i don't know what the word is mercurial (laughs) you know he can be different different people at different times tell me about your transition like it seems like you went pretty quickly from doing all that kind of stuff and then suddenly like you're doing these big soundtrack so i guess that's like an la thing and what was the process to getting that happening the process was another one of these freak things, the way I got involved with uh, New Earth and Dylan, really. Uh-huh. There was a film called Heaven's Gate Yeah, that um, I was hired to be a musician sort of on camera in the script. In fact, I was hired because the producer had seen me playing with Dylan at Madison Square Garden or something. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, so it, it, there, there was a connection that there off the bat and I, I I was hired along with with T-Bone and and a bunch of people from uh Christopherson's band like Jerry McGee and the late Stephen Bruton mm-hmm. uh, and some and some other musicians like Sean Hopper who was from Huey Lewis and the News okay um Norton the late Norton Buffalo um yeah. and and we were a, we were a band that's that 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 plays in a scene in, in the script and, and um Michael Cimino um, decided to sort of combine certain characters so that everybody that was in that band would would sort of be a minor character, you know, like a bit character in in, in the script. So you would see them in the life okay. of the town, so that they yeah. so we wouldn't just appear ex machina or whatever, just out of out of nothing. Okay. And along with T Bone and the rest of the musicians, I was up on the set for Heaven's Gate. Uh, for what was probably started out as like a, a two week gig was uh, six months. Not just filming, but but like how did that become? You were scoring it all of a sudden. Well, that's that's a, that's the thing. It had be, become such a large part of my life that when it was over, um, I made some recordings just on my own, just for fun, of some of the folk songs that, that we had performed. Um, you know, as part of the movie with okay. my arrangements and just playing them on in you know, a four track recorder at my little home studio. Yeah. And um I sent them in sort of, sort of anonymously to the director and this is Michael Chimino. Un- yeah, unbeknownst yeah. to me he'd been talking to a lot of famous composers, you know, Morricone, John Williams, you know, all these cuz he'd thought that he was going to need a big grandiose score. 
Right. And he was a he was a huge director at this point. Like he'd just done Deer Hunter and stuff, right? He was is very hot off Deer Hunter. Right. And anyway, he he just uh, started taking my <clears throat> tapes, transferred them and started playing with them against scenes. Okay. And it started and it just started working like gangbusters and then he asked me if I had any more or, or you know, I I sent in some more, recorded some more things and pretty soon he decided, "Wait a minute." This is going to be the direction of the score. Let's do this. And, 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 and that is so cool. And I actually got hired as the official composer. I understand that when he found out that the person who had done these tapes and who he was wanted to hire was this little punk kid who was who, who had been like you know a glorified extra on his movie, mm-hmm. that that he might have had a little twinge there. It's like you know well, what have I got myself into? Right. It was in post production for a very very long time. So really, um, there was plenty of time for you know for for me to sort of work at my pace and and learn as i as 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 i as i was going and i Mm -hmm. i didn't have to come in there knowing everything right about film scoring i i I, and also honestly the the way that 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 film worked it was scored more the way you would do a old-fashioned european film where you'd sort of have a library of themes and you'd you know do them sad slow fast you know like and okay. and 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 then the director would sort of take things and throw them a, a, up against picture and yeah um did he end up using some of those recordings that you were just randomly sending him at the beginning as like in the final cut i think i think that one of them i think one of the big scenes the, the one where he really fell in love with my music um i did re-record and, and on the, and on the soundtrack record it's definitely the the one that I re-recorded, but I think in the film he ended up using my four-track TAC demo. Oh, really? Oh, cool! It just had the had the mojo. Something that he heard that I could honestly couldn't even hear <laughs> that that did did something for him. Were you doing some of that stuff on big like Hollywood sound stages too? It it was ninety nine point nine percent in in a in recording studio. What it, and and what it. I was also surrounding myself in a comfortable environment. I, I recorded it in the same studio where we had done all of our Alpha Band stuff. Oh, the okay. engineer was uh, was Larry Hirsch, who had been, you know, like our comrade and engineer and sort of co-producer on everything. Okay, um, it's funny. I just I just talked about him with um, Steve Berlin. I had Steve Berlin on the show, and he was talking about Larry Hirsch quite a bit. Fantastic engineer, you know. Like, yeah. and, and it was just him, he, and I sitting in this sequestered away in this little tiny room upstairs a a, a studio called Paramount no relation uh-huh. to the film studio oh okay i did at one point I, I wrote some strings for you know for like one cue that sort of got kind of you know grandiose um mm-hmm. and i ended up writing both uh an overture and intermission music <laughs> really which were which were a string orchestra version of some of my themes
The intermission music was, was uh, for the original version of the film because it did have an intermission. They pulled the film because it had such a disastrous opening. Really? And, and, when, and when Michael went back and re-edited it, made a shorter version of the film, one of the conditions he would do this is that he wanted, you know, he would make it shorter and it wouldn't have an intermission, but he wanted a, a closed curtain style overture. So I went back and did that. And I oh, did cool. that on a Hollywood soundstage, did it, you know, a great bunch of first call string players on a Hollywood right. soundstage. And and recording to picture or or well in that to... case it was an overture so um, oh right yeah so, so there, there was, was no picture there was there was no need there was no need to but there was a there was another thing that that um that had big string sections that I there was basically overdubbing on things that I had uh, already laid down so although it okay. was scored to picture there was no real need for the picture so doing that big huge production style movie which probably took a, a huge all, all told a huge chunk of um, a, a year or more I guess of your life um, yeah it did did. did did that lead pretty quickly to other soundtrack work well not quickly because the the film you know was so controversial you know like I mean like you know the whole thing about it being the film that sunk United artists I mean it was <laughs> It was a, a nightmare, and, and I had one agent that I was trying to get an agent after that, and one guy told me, you know, you'd be better off having no credits at all than having Heaven's <laughs> Great as a credit. You know, like, yeah, you know, thanks a lot, you know. Oh, my God. And But but I, but I couldn't get arrested, you know, like a, after that, really. Really? Because um, the music's pretty iconic in that movie, and you'd think that that would translate. Well, to- I had a lot of excitement, you know, about my about my work, you know, like, I mean, I had a soundtrack album. They even pre- pressed up a bunch of singles for it. Really? They were expecting it to be another, like, Lara's theme or something. Uh-huh. But when that didn't materialize, you know, I, I really couldn't get arrested. Uh-huh. Um, and I went back to performing, you yeah. know, doing some touring, uh, other stuff, and didn't get back to uh, scoring until Michael uh, had another film, which was Year of the Dragon. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, how many years later was that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, that was like mid eighties, maybe or eighty four. Mid eighties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Probably. Probably. Probably mid eighties. Yeah. And that was scored in the in, very much in the traditional way. You oh, know, some okay. of it was electronic. Some of it was electronic. So I, you know, like synthesizer, and I, so I did that kind of stuff in in a studio. But but a, a good amount of it was orchestral. You know, and and, yeah. and I orchestrated, conducted, and conducted the picture, and you know did it the usual way. When the session was actually going to come up and I was going to have to step onto the podium for the first time and do it for real, I asked my friend Van Dyke Parks what to do. And what did Van Dyke tell you? Something poetic, I'm sure. Yeah, I said, like, you know, wear dark glasses, <laughs> uh, gesticulate a lot, and yell for your interpreter. <laughs> I can I can picture him saying that. Oh, my <laughs> God. Were you freaking out? Like I was when I was asking Van Dyke, what the heck do I do? You know, but but by the time I was on the stage, I, I wasn't. I mean, like, I kn- I knew the material so well, I could have conducted it, you know, with my ears filled with cotton and with a blindfold right. on. Okay. And and the other thing is is that 
I knew this a little bit beforehand, but but I found out in spades that when when you record in, in LA, they are so diligent, the musicians. You know, like they try and second guess what you want and give it to you before you even have to ask ask them for it. Really? Okay. And uh, they have lived through sessions with the most horrid conductors you can ever imagine, and yeah. still make make them sound like heroes. And you know, like so. So they were really on your on your side. They were totally on my side and 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 did the heavy lifting, you know. Like, wow, and cool. all I really had to do was sort of use my ears and make sure, you know, like to tell them, like, you know, this a little bit quieter, this a little bit more emotional, this, you know, mm-hmm. crescendo a little bit more here. You know, like I didn't have to worry about having great stick t- technique. Right. Okay. <laughs> really. I know, and 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 we were recording stuff to click anyway. On a film like that, like Year of the Dragon, where you're doing a full-on orchestral thing, what's the process like as far as um, do you get a, a final cut or a rough cut of the film to compose to, and how long do you give yourself, or do they give you to come up with all the music for it? Michael did that film like you know, like on time and on budget, but it still was the old days. It was before they had Avids and you know non-linear editing and all that kind of stuff and so post-production was a long time and he and and because he knew that he wanted me to do it i mean like i was involved early on so i i had months to write that score oh yeah you know and and it wasn't it wasn't a lot of music you know like a film composer could have probably turned it out in two weeks you know Uh instead of three months right so i i had i had the luxury of, of of plenty of time at that at that point oh that's nice in between the time of doing Heaven's Gate and doing Year of the Dragon, because like when I when I did like say like the overture or some of the uh, string orchestra stuff on 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 Year of the Dragon, I, I mean on Heaven's Gate, I wasn't confident enough to conduct. I hired a conductor. Okay. Okay. Um. But but realizing afterwards, you know, like I mean, like as I was, as I I wanted to get more scoring work, I wanted you know to progress. That's that's when I sort of put myself through school. You know, like I. I I spent those years studying. I, you know, got a bunch of college textbooks on everything from theory to conducting technique, and 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 and, and tried to teach myself as much as as much as possible. Right. So you wanted to really like work on that side of things. I was coming back after having you know done a lot of on my own, not not under somebody, but I'd done a lot, yeah. doing a lot of studying. And the thing is, is that this was this was sort of like the second start after Year of the Dragon. I started, you know, getting you know, work. The film was not a gigantic success, but it wasn't a failure either. Uh-huh. And my sort of career doing, you know, composing sort of started then, not after Heaven's Gate. And then, and you did a bit of work with Ry Cooter as well on Alamo Bay, I know, and and um, I think another one, Primary Colors as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what the process was like working for somebody like that, where he, like, he almost makes albums that are that are just like a listening experience without the picture. Um, I'm just wondering oh, yeah. the way that he was working an influence on you at all. And what were the, what were the sessions like working for him on a soundtrack? Well, I, I, I got involved with him. I think it was through Van Dyke, you know, I has okay. been a friend since the early alpha band days. Okay. I sort of watched, you know, Rye, like, you know, sort of improvising, on slide guitar, you know, like looking at the, not, he wasn't improvising. He had worked all this stuff out, you know, like, but, uh-huh. but he was doing it, you know, like f- by feel, like looking at a video monitor or whatever of, of the picture. Yeah. 
Um, he, he was, you know, he wasn't reading music. He wasn't going to click. It, you know, like it was all by feel. Yeah. And I don't think that I necessarily learned anything because I would have probably been too nervous to, to do things without, you know, the backup of, you know, of having everything worked out to the T beforehand. You know. Okay. So it was a different uh, just approach. My my personality, but 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 it was but it was inspiring and fascinating to watch him do it. And your role on those soundtracks was to was playing violin, or I think he had me, yeah, play violin. I think he had me play cello on one thing, which I, I don't even play. But he sort of wanted a wretched tone for some <laughs> emotional effect. So yeah, when I, when he heard that I had a cello, he made me bring it and play it. And and you were overdubbing onto stuff that he'd already done. Is that what the situation was? Some some of the stuff we we played live. Oh, okay. Just you and him, or, you know. He, he had a, he had like a like a band of, of of maybe six people or so, and we were spread out in, I think uh, it was the big room at Ocean Way or something, and oh, and, cool. uh, and 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 we did it basically live. And was Lindley involved in those sessions? No, I don't think David was. And Van Dyke was he there? Uh, Van yeah. Dyke was because oh, Van Dyke also okay. would, 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 would Van Dyke would would have the job if there was something that needed to be written down. Then he would Van Dyke would transcribe it, you know, and, okay. and 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 take care of the you know notation duties. Right. But I think that I did do something with uh, with David because I seem to recall him. Maybe he brought along one of those Nordic Hardinger fiddles or something. It must be totally different working with different directors, like as it would be with different musicians or different producers in the studio. Uh, do you have like obviously your relationship with Michael Cimino was a big important one for you. Are there other directors? Yeah. I know you've worked with like Walter Hill and uh, I don't know what other directors you've worked with, but like, are there some ones for you that were like really artistically satisfying? First and foremost, my, my wife, Maggie Greenwald's a filmmaker and okay. earlier in her, earlier in her career, we had the chance to work together a bunch and she has a totally different way of working uh, than, than Chimino did, but we had, you know, always had a fantastic time working together mm -hmm. another one that that americans wouldn't know about but i i did a lot of work with the mexican director arturo ripstein who's sort of a protege of luis Buñuel's, and he makes these beautiful really dark films <laughs> Well, one one of the one of the films that he that he made that that's probably easiest to find here because it, it was distributed and and uh, and exhibited theatrically in America and and got some awards was called uh, in English it was called Deep Crimson. Okay. Uh, it won a bunch of of awards I think at Venice and some other festivals. 
and the way that Arturo worked was completely different from from anybody else. I mean, like he he wanted the music to be have its own independent voice, almost independent of the of 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 the action, and you know, like and and I would start working with him uh, from the script stage. I would start writing themes, you know, like after the script was done, before it was okay. shot, and and sometimes. Okay. The, he he would play the themes on the set as you know to get the actors in the mood to do the scene. Right. Yeah, I've heard about some people doing that. He would always encourage me to write melodies that you know that that one could hum or whistle afterwards. You know, like to not mm-hmm. be doing atmospheric stuff, but to really sort of try and strike some sort of real voice. Score wise, are you still doing that actively? Like, do you have anything um, that you've done really recently? Well, I do have something, uh, a film with, with my wife um, that's going to be coming out in January. Oh, cool. What is that? It's called Sophie and the Rising Sun. Uh-huh. Um, and I think we just got word that it's going to be uh, opening in L.A. Uh, on January 27th, if I'm not mistaken. Did you do a full score for that, or is it more intimate kind of recording? It's it's intimate. Um uh-huh. But it, I did something that was a lot of fun. I I, I wrote it. It's a it, chamber music score. I, I mean, I, I wrote it for uh, a string quintet. Oh, nice. Um, I don't know. It's got a s- strong thematic element that runs through it. Um, I also, <laughs> with my father's help, hired some musicians from the Philharmonic who were just like top of their field yeah. musicians. And then wrote stuff that I would not have thrown to any other string players. Right. <laughs> you know, like was, was, I mean, like wrote like, very freely in a, in, in a way that I, I knew that they, that, that they could play this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I've had, ex- I've had experiences where, where I wrote stuff that was, you know, I, being a violin player, I know what can be played and can't, sure. but I've been with fantastic musicians like I have been, you know, in, in New York and in LA and also with not so fantastic musicians in studios in towns that will remain nameless. <laughs> mm-hmm, I bet. Um, and you have to and, kind of and, you have to kind of customize the the scoring for that situation. In a situation like 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 that, you know, like I, I don't have to like write down to people, but I, but I know that like you know, okay, this thing is too risky to write. I'm going to have to leave this this bit out. I'm going to have yeah. to rein myself in, and you know, here or there. Right. Um, anyway, on on this on on this score, it was just. Um, Wonderful because I got a chance to write this stuff, and then wonderfully surprised by the performances that they threw back at me. You know oh, that, cool. that that totally ex- exceeded. You know what, what your expectations were. Took the material and brought it to you know like a couple yeah. of levels above where it started. Okay, so um, it was really it was really fun to work on. And you mentioned that you're playing more live and and touring and stuff like that. What what does the fu- the immediate yeah. future hold for that? Are like are you ever going to have your own band up and running, or do you kind of just prefer doing the sideman kind of thing? I always I I prefer being in the accompanist yeah. role. You know, I, I mean, I yeah. I might I might do something of my own. You know, now and then. Uh, you know, I've I've been coerced recently to sing a song i wrote in public <laughs> uh-huh. this is the kind of thing i swore i'd never do and <laughs> um but but i don't i don't have any ambitions to right. you know okay be up there be up there center stage yeah demanding yeah. everybody listen to be, shut up and listen to me so you've been out with glenn hansard and and you mentioned and um yeah uh, what other kinds of touring are you doing 
well, nothing at the at, right at the moment. Although, mm-hmm. um, oh, right around the time this film comes out, I'm going to go and do one of those Kayamo cruises. I'm not sure if I'm oh, pronouncing yeah. it right. Those which uh, I've heard about for years. They sound so much fun. Yeah, I, who are you doing I know, that with? I know um, with the uh, Loudon Wainwright's family show, which is like oh. him, Rufus, Martha, yep. his sister Sloane, Sezzy uh, okay. Roach, his daughter Lucy Wainwright Roach. Okay. Um, wow. It's just, it's really fun. We've 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 he's he's put it on a few times already, and you know, I can and it's it's a really fun thing. Do they all play together and and collaborate and that whole thing? You know, like some of it is is kind of like a review, but then there's a couple songs we all do together, and 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 they pair up on on certain things as well. I mean, you know, Lucy okay. and her dad have 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 done a, a lot together. You know, of course. And you you've played with Loudon a lot. Like he played on his records and stuff before. So that yeah, we yeah we we go way back. I and, and in fact, I produced his last record. Oh, did you? Oh, I didn't realize it, that. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's called "Haven't Got the Blues uh, Yet." Yet in parentheses. I haven't got the blues yet, but I'm experiencing Probably won't be long Cause I'm feeling kind of bluish That's why I wrote this song My life isn't tragic But it's still a doggone shame I'm not the man I used to be Thanks so much, man, for taking the time. I really appreciate you um, talking to me and telling me some of these stories and, and giving me some history about you because you've been involved in so much great music in so many different ways better to, better to hear my faulty memories and somebody else's <laughs> faulty memories well, cool well it was really really enjoyable and, and also that you did so much homework i really appreciate that, that oh no problem my me. pleasure i promise not to cheat it's your last chance to dance so why are you hiding all right what a cool guy that was david mansfield it was great talking to him Great to hear his stories, and I hope you dug it. So I will see you next week. Please come on back, tell all your pals, and we can nerd out on music together again on another episode next week of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 